We'll be coming back this afternoon to the text that we looked at this morning, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. And again, to remind you of our Lord's words there in that text, beginning at verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There have been those who have actually uh, brought out and made the comparison between uh, that mountain, that Mount Sinai that we just read about and the giving of the law and our Lord Jesus here ascending at the very beginning with this very first sermon, uh, ascending this mountain and preaching this sermon and the contrast that exists between the giving of the law and that which comes from the mouth of our Lord Jesus here. We took some time this morning to try to open up, blessed are the poor in spirit, and we looked at why he speaks this first, uh, knocking out from underneath those Jews, and even from us, anything that we would look at regarding externals, uh, but also speaking and saying this first as the fundamental characteristic for all, as I said, all true saving faith, that those who would know Christ, that those who would know membership in His kingdom must be these kind of people, poor in spirit. They are. They have been made to be that. They've been made sensible to their poverty in spirit. And that's what we gave as a basic definition of being poor in spirit, is to be made sensible of that. And then we saw the outworkings of it with regard to emptying ourselves and the the beggarliness of it, looking to another, that is, looking to our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to supply us with all those things that we have need of. Now, this afternoon... What I want to do is to come back and I want us to consider what are the blessings that are bound or tied to this poverty of spirit. Because that is what these are. They're the Beatitudes, the the blessed statements, right? And this begins on that very note. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when we hear that, isn't that a strange thing to think about? Not only that these would be the very first words out of our Savior's mouth, but that He would tie poverty and beggarliness and this crouching and this shame and this emptiness to blessing. It just seems to be a strange, as our brother said a moment ago, paradox. Uh, Poverty and blessedness. But that's what He says. Our Lord commends this as a truly blessed thing. Well, How so? That's what we want to take up this afternoon. And I think I have maybe four or five ways in which we see the blessedness of it. Firstly, this. To be poor in spirit is a gracious disposition. That's what we must know about what he's saying here. To be poor in spirit is a gracious disposition. And therefore, what I mean by that is to be made sensible is in itself a blessing. That we should be made sensible of our poverty? That we should be made sensible of our our emptiness, our nothingness? That we should be made sensible of our need? That in itself is a kindness shown by God, right? I am, Paul said, what I am by the grace of God. And that would even include 
this sensibility, this poverty of spirit, which was the very thing that provoked and enabled Paul to be able to even admit something like that. Anything that you see in me, anything that I do, anything that's accomplished by me, that, what explains that? Grace explains that. That's what explains that. To be poor in spirit is, I say, a gracious disposition. Just think about how many thousands... I would even say, how many millions, right? If you think about the span of history or even those who live and breathe on this earth at this very moment, this day, how many millions, billions rove about with spiritual sores agape, dripping with pride from their bloody wounds, the very things with which they should be ashamed of, drip with pride. Think about that. Think about how they walk in their darkness. Think about how they are so deadened in their spiritual impulses. They don't even know it. That's that's truly, if you want to think about a leprosy, if you want to think about a sickness, that's truly the worst kind of all. To be mortally struck with an illness, a cancer that's eating you from the inside out. And to not even know it, even more than that, to boast in it. How many billions are doing that, have done that throughout history? Well, dear saint, what makes you to differ? Grace. There's only one answer to that. Grace. And what do you have that you did not receive? nothing. All that we have is our own sin. And anything beyond that that we have, it's because we've received it. And we've received it freely by God's grace. Therefore, I would put it this way. It's a sign of grace to even know your need of grace. Here's how Spurgeon put it. I couldn't I'll I'll quote from Spurgeon quite a bit this afternoon. I couldn't help it. He said this, If the Holy Spirit has broken a door for you into the spiritual and unseen, then you are blessed. Even though your only perception as yet may be the painful discovery that you are poor in spirit. But that discovery of being made poor in spirit, being sensible of our poverty of spirit, what Spurgeon is saying is, because the Holy Spirit has come and kicked down the door. He's opened your eyes and He's made you to discover that very thing. And therefore, that very sensibility is wherein the blessedness is found. Right? Second, I would hasten... To add to that, that this work, poverty of spirit, sensibility to our bankruptcy, within it bears the promise, even the assurance of salvation. In other words, Jesus is saying to us here, part of the blessedness of being made sensible of your nothingness, your beggarliness, and made to cry out and to look to another, is that it bears within it the marks of salvation and even the assurance of salvation. So that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, it is the kingdom of heaven. It's not something that will be yours. Brethren, 
If you have been made sensible by the grace of God, of your poverty of spirit, your need of Him, it's because of salvation. It's because it bears the marks of all of that. It bears the marks of regeneration. Jesus said this to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, twice, verse 3 and verse 5. He said it this way first. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 5, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 that the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. And he says to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the spirit. Here the promise of regeneration to Nicodemus and the promise of the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven by being sensible of our poverty of spirit, go hand in hand. How is it that one is made sensible? He's made sensible by the very fact that he's been washed, that he's been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Further, it bears the marks, the sensibility of poverty of spirit bears the marks of justification. If you have been made to know By the operations of the Holy Spirit, your spiritual poverty, the Spirit, as it were, kicking in the door, to use Spurgeon's language again, that bears the marks. The outworkings of it bear the marks of justification. The Lord Jesus tells us that being sensible of His need and crying out for mercy under the sense of that need, the tax collector went down to his house, justified. He wouldn't look up to heaven. He was crouching. Oh, how the beggar crouches. And he's beating his chest. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I see my need. And I see that you alone are the only one who's able to give it. And Jesus said, he went down to his house justified. And that's essentially what he's teaching us in this beatitude also. In fact, Lloyd-Jones said, there's no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone than this. I wonder if you've ever thought of that beatitude in that way. That kind of, when I read that, when I read that Lloyd, what Lloyd-Jones had said, I had to stop and I had to think about this a little bit. But as you all know from what we've studied in spiritual depression and what he even says in this Sermon on the Mount, and I am in full agreement with this, that the work of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, all that happens is first a tearing down before it's a building up. And in that tearing down process, God is making us to know our need. And then He's turning us to the only source wherein we may find that justification, mercy from His hands, mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, Lloyd-Jones says, there's no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone than this, that a man 
is made sensible. Even as regeneration and poverty go hand in hand, so faith and poverty of spirit go hand in hand. Why? They both look away from their self to another. Faith does that. Poverty of spirit does that. They both believe what is true of themselves before God and what is true of God and the provision that He alone supplies. They both say with Paul, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All things all that I could point to, all that I could lay hold of, all that my pride might be swollen with, I count all of that as nothing, as loss. Why? That I may gain Him, that I may have a knowledge of Him for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's being made sensible of your poverty and spirit. Those who have been made to be poor in spirit are given, therefore, the assurance that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And none can have that except those who have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And therefore, that's the blessedness of it, is that it bears the marks, the strong marks of an assurance of salvation. Have you been made sensible? Have you been made to know your poverty? Have you been made to be stricken in the dust and understand, thrown rather in the dust and understand that there is nothing in me, nothing in my hands that I can bring? And simply to the cross, I clean. That's the marks of salvation. And therefore, it is a blessed thing to be poor in spirit. Thirdly, The blessedness of this sensibility of poverty of spirit is contained in our having the smile of God upon us and the promise of His abiding presence and His continued help. Remember this morning I said that so much of what the Jews equated to blessing were only in externals and tangibles. That if God is blessing your house, if God is blessing your field, if God is blessing your, your cattle, your beast, if God is blessing the womb of your wife, then you must be right with Him. And I said that Jesus is coming and He's preaching something that's very different. He's preaching to us that the true blessedness is in the reality, is in the discovery of our poverty of spirit so that we might ever abide in His presence with hands stretched out, looking only to Him for all that we have need of. That, my friends, ensures the smile of God, not what we may have, not what we may not have in this world. And I think maybe when Jesus is saying that, He's preparing those who would follow Him to understand that if you indeed do follow Me, as He says in the final beatitude, you will suffer persecution. You may lose everything, but don't be downcast. 
Don't be forgetful of this one thing, that the blessed smile of God rests upon those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah 57, we're told, verse 15, For thus says the high and lofty one who... And I love the way that God puts this for us. Twice, Isaiah 57, and then I'll read Isaiah 66. But in Isaiah 57, He says... Thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 66, he says the same thing. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, O man? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one, on this one, I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. What's he saying? The King, the High, and the Holy One who inhabits eternity, who made all things, who rules over all things, who says that earth is His footstool. He says, I, this great, high, holy, pure God, I am going to be looking upon the One who builds massive things for me. I look on the beggar. I draw near to Him. I dwell with Him. My smile is upon Him. Not all the greatest constructs of man are fit to hold me. Not all the greatest temples that man could put together are fit to conceal my glory, to hold my glory in, or to be able to show it forth as it ought to be shown forth. Nothing in this earth is fit to show forth the excellency and the glory of God, but the heart that has been emptied will be my abode. I say again what I said this morning, not what we have. But what we have not is the first point of contact between the soul and God. But I say it also this way, not what we have, but what we have not is the abiding point of contact between the soul and God. Spurgeon, again, God wants nothing of us except our wants. And these furnish him, Spurgeon says, with room to display his bounty when he supplies them freely. Psalm 50, verse 15, he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. We see that testimony all the way through Scripture. That this is how... Our God works. This is how He operates. This is to whom He looks. This is the way in which He is magnified the most. This is the way in which He's glorified the most. How is it? By helping poor, sinful creatures that realize I have nothing but God. 
That's what God smiles upon. And therefore, this blessedness is contained in that very thing, that we have God's presence and abiding, and He wants nothing of us except our wants. Fourthly, its blessedness consists also in this, that this promise is not future. It's present. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, this verse, verse 3 and verse 10, both have the same blessing connected to them, and they're both in the present tense. But none of the other Beatitudes are in the present tense. The blessings incurred are all spoken in a future tense. We'll deal with that in days to come, and we'll try to hash all of that out. But this one, this one is present twice. Theirs is the kingdom. Not in the future. It is in the future. But it is very really theirs now. It is very really yours now, my dear brother, my dear sister. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Your heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He is your king. And you are not only subjects, you're the very sons and daughters of God in this kingdom. All things, Paul says to the Corinthians, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you're arguing over which camp you're in. Let me tell you, God has given you all for your good, for your joy, for your benefit, for your blessing. All, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Or Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not then also freely give us all things? He's given the very best. He's given His Son. His Son has spilt His blood. His Son has suffered the wrath of God on behalf of those who are indeed made sensible of their poverty And therefore, in light of all that God has given in His Son, how will He not freely then give you all things? Oh, what a blessedness is this. That's the kingdom that we inherit. Ephesians 1.30 I read this this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God in Him Yes and amen. All the promises of God in Him are yes, surely, of a certainty, and amen, truly, so be it. Forgiveness? Yes. Redemption? Yes. Eternal life? Yes. And everything else that flows from Him? Yes and yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All things are given to the poor in spirit. To the poor in spirit, one person said, belong all the security, the honor, and the happiness which the gospel kingdom is calculated to give upon earth. 
Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Poor in spirit, as our brother mentioned, made rich. Rich beyond measure. Rich rich beyond what we can even fully fathom, what we can even fully comprehend in this world. We don't know. We don't know the riches. We have them laid forth for us in some measure. But truly, eye has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has stored up for those who love in this world. All the kingdom of heaven, yours. All the security, honor, and happiness calculated, measured forth for you on this earth. Something to marvel about, something to glory in. What a blessedness to be made sensible of our poverty of spirit. Fifthly, the blessedness of all this is also found in the happy rest and calm repose it brings to the soul. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The psalmist, Psalm 146, verse 5, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Thomas Watson said, It sweetly quiets the soul, this poverty of spirit, this coming to discover that we have nothing and that we need all from Him. It sweetly quiets the soul to know that if God be for us, who can be against us? Though I am a poor beggar and I have nothing with which to commend myself to Him, He is rich. Though I am weak and I cannot ascend that mountain, He is strong. Though I have nothing, all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. And He's promised to abide with His people. It's a blessing to have your life resting on an unchanging rock. Remember what he says in this very sermon, the very end of it, speaking of the man who builds his house on the rock. He said, the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. And it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. It's interesting to me and just thinking about that even now. The emphasis is not on the house. It's on the rock. My shack is not about what you are in yourself. It's upon the rock that you're resting on. That's what it's about. I read you my favorite quote earlier today. I want to read it again because I want to fill it out. David Dixon. Remember, I said, he said this, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad, and I cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from them both. That's one part. Here's the other part. And betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him I have sweet peace. What was that man's secret? He had betaken himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. What was 
the secret of a man like William Carey. If you know anything of William Carey, missionary to India, he lost everything. When he died on his tombstone, the epithet was this, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. What was Paul's secret? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And when we hear that statement in Philippians, we often think of it as some, as some heroic statement. It's not a heroic statement. It's the declaration of a helpless man that knew what he was. We read it this morning in Sunday school. He calls himself formally a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, angry, puffed up with pride, the chief of sinners. But he also knew something else. He writes in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him until that day. Blessed are the poor in spirit who have been made sensible of that poverty. Now, in, in conclusion, I want to ask a question I think is very important. Our brother has alluded to it already. But I want to come back to it and I want, to, I want to talk about it in a little bit more detail. How is it that a man comes to this recognition of his spiritual bankruptcy? Because it's not just seeing it once, it's, it's a stamp upon the life of the Christian. It's to mark us. Very practically speaking, the way to become poor, Lloyd-Jones said, is by looking at God. The way to become poor is by looking at God. John Calvin put it this way. I've referred to this before in the very beginnings of his institutes. I think it's a foundational statement that Calvin writes. And I think it ties in very well with what our Lord Jesus says. He says this, Calvin, A man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. That was the experience of Peter. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He had seen the power of Christ. That was the experience of Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He had seen the holiness and the glory of God. That was the experience of the psalmist Asaph. When he was so taken by all of the circumstances, all the things, all the wicked men and all their wicked doings that he saw all around him and he says, my foot had almost slipped. What was it that brought him to his senses? I, uh, Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood therein, but then he goes on and he has another conclusion. Not only that he understood therein, those people that were perplexing him because they were getting along so well in this world, even though they were wicked and not serving God, but there's another conclusion. 
that comes out of his seeing God in the sanctuary. He says in verse 22, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail. I am nothing. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, as long as we only look to ourselves, as long as we only judge ourselves by ourselves and all that's around us, we'll never see ourselves as ourselves, as we are. As long, again, Calvin uses this illustration of a man with his physical eyes looking at the earth. As long as we look down to the ground and the objects around us, we think that we have the most clear view of things. Until, he says, we look up to the sun and then suddenly our sight is instantly dazzled and confounded by the refulgence and the brightness of it. We can't even open our eyes at it and then suddenly we see the weakness of our sight. And he says, so it is with us spiritually. Once we begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being He is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we're bound to be conformed, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us under the name of will, wisdom will dis, uh, disgust by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. So far are those qualities in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. Let me put it in my own words. The way to a spiritual apprehension of who we are before God, how empty, how destitute, how poor, how beggarly, the way of continuing in a clear sight of who we are, how empty, how destitute, how poor, how beggarly is the way of this book. It's the contemplation of who He has revealed Himself to be. It's the contemplation of what He requires of us truly in His law. A clear sight is found under the ministry, not only of this book, but under the ministry of the Word preached as Jesus Christ is presented to us. Even as our brother read from 1 Corinthians, that we might recollect, that we might understand, that we might see that He has chosen us not because of anything in us. He's chosen us according to His own good pleasure, His own will, so that all boasting might be excluded, all might be wiped away. We might see we have nothing to commend ourselves. How do we see that? How do we hold it in view? How do we keep Christ before us? But through the word preached, through meditating on the things heard, looking upon the one to whom we must give an account, looking upon the one to whom saves us. And if we would see something of His glory, we will see it there. Look at Him and keep looking at Him. That's how we see it. But also, I want to hasten to reiterate something that I said at the outset this afternoon. Anyone who has come to have a sensibility of just how naked, poor, miserable, and blind they are, it's been granted to you to see that. That's how, 
just think about it this way. That's how far the beggarliness of our soul reaches. We can't even see. We can't even see without help. We can't even feel without help. You you want this poverty of spirit to be struck to the depths of your soul? This is how. It humbles us. The thought of that alone should humble us. We can't, we can't, the very thing that we must do to even be this kind of person, we can't even get there on our own. Even the ability to be sensible is a gift. Blind men can't see the sun. Dead men don't know their destitution. And those who do, do so because God has willed it to be so. Isaiah's woe unto me was because God came and made Himself known. Job's abhorring himself and casting himself into the dust of the earth was because God came in the whirlwind and made Himself known and humbled Job in the dust. Peter, making that great confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, is told flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, or Matthew 11, verse 27, the Lord Jesus says this, No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. To have all that we throw up in opposition to God. To be at last cast at His feet with a willing recognition that we have nothing and that we need all from Him. That's a God-like miracle of grace. And I say that because as I bring this sermon to a conclusion, I want every single mouth in this place to be shut. We need Him. And yet we can't even see our need of Him without Him. And what then ought we to do? What we... Let me ask it this way. What if we do not feel the need? What then are we to do? What if we seem to not be able to see? What are we to do? The very next words out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 11, after He says, No one knows the Father unless the Son wills to reveal Him. No one can see the Father. No one can be brought to those apprehensions of God that would strike Him to the dust of the earth and make Him to understand that He is a poor, needy soul unless Christ Himself wills to reveal that to the man. The very next words. Come. Come to Me. And if we cannot come with a broken heart, we can come for a broken heart. It's what beggars do. 
They beg. Your lack, if you don't see, if you don't feel, if you don't, if you don't know your emptiness, if you, if you feel like, I just, I can't grasp this. I, I, your lack, the very lacking, is proof of your poverty. And you're shut up entirely to mercy. Again, I want to read Spurgeon. I'm not smart enough to come up with these things. Uh, apparently not spiritual enough to see them the way that he sees them. But I think this is helpful. So I want you to just listen to his words. He says this, He who is poor in spirit is poor in feelings as well as in everything else and dares no more commend himself on account of his humblings and despairings than on account of his sins themselves. He thinks himself to be a hard-hearted sinner as he acknowledges the deep repentance which offenses call for. He fears that he is a stranger to that sacred quickening which makes the conscience tender. And he dreads lest he should in any measure be a hypocrite in the desires which he perceives to be in his soul. He hears of the humiliations of true penitence and wishes, he wishes, I wish that I had them. He reads the descriptions of repentance given in the Word of God and prays, I want to see them, I want to realize this. But he sees nothing in himself upon which he can put his finger and say, this at least is good. In me there dwells at least some one good thing. He is poor in spirit, and from him all boasting is cut off once for all. Even the man that sees that he can't see. Even the man that has a sense that I can't feel. All boasting is cut off. That's exactly where God wants you. And Jesus says, you come to me. And I will give you rest. I don't have anything. You don't need anything. Only the one who has nothing can come. No one else. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the beggarly. But I have no sense of my beggarliness. Then you're poor. And Jesus says, come. What a rich, what a mighty, what a merciful Savior. What a blessedness. Might God have mercy. Might He help us to be this kind of person. Might we be beggars. Lord, would You help me? Lord Jesus, would You help us? I fear that even in the rehearsing of these things, Lord, there is this great reality that none of us fully sense just how poor we really are. Lord Jesus, would you fill our hands with mercy? We crouch in your presence this afternoon, Lord. 
we hear the promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And oh, we see the blessedness of those who are beggarly. Lord, make us to be and make us to stay in this poor, empty place of nothingness. A worm falling on your kind arms. God help us. We ask it in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.